let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to our text this morning for the reading and the preaching of God's Word is out of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 14 to 20. First Thessalonians chapter four, chapter two, verses fourteen to twenty. Now let's hear the word of the Lord. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also suffered the same things at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And drove us out and do not please God and are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brothers, having been taken away from you for a short while in face but not in heart, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who was our hope, or our joy, or crown of boasting? Is it not even you before our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. May God bless his word. Please be seated. Would you bow with me as we ask the Lord's blessing on his word? Father, we've come this morning not to hear the words of men, but to hear the very words of the living God. We thank you, Lord, for your word, that we have it. We thank you that it's sufficient. We thank you, Lord, that it is without error. And so now we pray that you would come and use it to help us, encourage us, strengthen us, spur us on, Lord, to run the race with endurance, and Lord, even save some who may yet be outside of Christ in these moments. And so, Lord, do much from, for your church, Lord, now. We pray that you would fill us up with all the fullness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church at Thessalonica, as we've seen, was a church that Paul had come and preached to for about three weeks and left. And then God did an amazing work. Paul's writing back to them. Now, as uh, he's in, uh, uh, in Corinth, and he is writing to encourage them, and one of his great encouragements to them is that they were a people who loved the word of God. Verse 13, as we saw last week. You know, that's really a chief mark of a genuine believer, is 
that you are someone who, who loves to hear the word of the Lord because you in that are hearing your Lord. You love the scriptures because you, you hear Christ speaking to you there. They're his words. So you treasure them. This is a church at Thessalonica. And the result there of a church that loves the word of God is, as Paul speaks of them, at least one of their great results is verse 14, that they became imitators of other faithful churches. Particularly, Paul refers to the churches in Judea. And, and they became imitators, specifically Paul focuses on here, in their willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. So a church that loves the word of God is going to be a church that is also willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And a, a faithful church knows that, that hostility to the gospel is going to be sort of natural, expected in this, this world. A faithful church will eventually, at some point in their life, run into the anger of the world, the hostility of the enemy. Paul reminds that the church in Thessalonica of that fact. He reminds them of what the world did to Christ. Verse 15. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and then drove us out and do not please God and are hostile to all men. They killed the Lord of glory. They killed the prophets. They drove Paul out of Thessalonica. They, they went on to hinder Paul from speaking to the Gentiles of the gospel. We should know that, that hell is big mad every time the gospel is faithfully preached. And I, I think especially when the gospel is faithfully preached to those who have never heard. And whenever the gospel is proclaimed, there is going to be a, a direct, a frontal assault that comes from the kingdom of darkness. Because the gospel comes as this bright light shining in a dark place. And, and as it does, it really awakens dark forces ready to clash with the gospel. It's a certainty. Gospel preaching catches hell's attention. And it awakens the devil's wrath when it goes forth. But a faithful church, like the church at Thessalonica, is one that is willing to speak of the message of Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. Christ is the one who has conquered sin and death. Christ is the one who is going to judge the living and the dead. To judge angels and demons. 
the faithful church is going to preach this one. And to know that hell will come at it then with a fierceness. Hell will always fight back, you could say, with, with haymakers, with schemes, with lies, and pure hatred and murder as they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and false doctrine. So, as the church goes forth with the gospel, beloved, we should never expect the world to go along without a fight. And yet, we need to go forth knowing that whatever resistance the world brings to the church, resistance is futile. The world's War against the church and the gospel cannot succeed. It, the world will, will come with anger. It will come with lies. It comes with murder. It comes with viciousness at times. It comes with false accusations. But in the end, it truly has nothing to stop the church. Hell has a relative power to hinder us. doesn't mean that, that the world and the devil can really do nothing to the church. Paul acknowledges this in verse 16. He said that, that they were hindered from speaking to the Gentiles, that they may be saved. And so there is some hindering work that the enemy does to the church. Those who are opposing Jesus killed him. That sounds like hindering. They killed the prophets. That, that sounds at least on, on the surface pretty effective. They didn't just cancel Jesus. They killed him. But look at what happened. Christ rose. He conquered death. And it was through his death that sin and death were conquered. Even though Christ was killed, you could say resistance was futile. They drove Paul out of Thessalonica. And Paul, certainly one of, you could say, one of the most spirit-filled men in the world at the time, and, and arguably perhaps the most important man at the time in the spread of the gospel to the nations, Paul being driven out of Thessalonica. And, and in that moment, you could say it sure seemed like Paul's losing. He's losing the fight with the enemies of the cross. But look what happened. Paul fled down to, down to Berea after just a few weeks of ministry there in Thessalonica. He preached the gospel in Berea. And we see bad actors came down from Thessalonica as well, and they chased Paul out of Berea eventually. 
but a faithful church was established in both places. The gospel had already been preached in those spots. And, and, and hell was really, in a sense, trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And it couldn't. It didn't matter now if Paul fled after preaching Christ. For, for now, Christ was on the move in these towns and these places and, and could not be stopped. So we ought to know there will be temporary and momentary resistance to the gospel and to the church through the ages. Sometimes it will be severe, brutal. But we need to know it's never fatal to the church. Because the church belongs to Jesus, the risen one. And Christ lives within her by faith. And so the the church is able then, because of Christ, to take all the arrows that the world might hurl at her and still rise. It may mean some of those are really painful arrows. Painful arrows like, like the death of Stephen in the book of Acts where we read how, how faithful men gathered up Stephen. That, that broken body. And that we're told they mourned for him. Or, or how the Apostle James was put to death in the book of Acts. But, but just as, as Justin Martyr, who was a second century believer, Justin Martyr said to the Roman emperor, you can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. We ought to be those kind of men and women who believe that we are we are really invincible until the will of God is finished with us, this side of glory. It doesn't mean we live foolishly, we live carelessly. It doesn't mean we tempt death or, or we deliberately seek out to be a martyr in any way, right? I've enjoyed, uh, especially this past summer, I got a mountain bike and I've enjoyed getting out and learning uh, how to ride a mountain bike on the trail some. Uh, it's fun to learn to improve your skills, but, but also learned uh, that I'm kind of like a first grader in my skills when it comes to some others, right, who are able uh, to ride. But there are also some out there that they just tempt death. in the ways and the places that they might ride, riding off massive jumps along narrow cliffs, doing flips. And, and there's certainly a point where it's not if you will get seriously injured, it's just when, right? And so there's a sense in which they're, they're tempting death in that. But, 
That's not what we do as believers. We're not foolish. We're not careless. We're not reckless. And yet, and yet we go not fearing death in the proclamation of the gospel at any moment that God might call us to do that. Paul encourages the church there in Thessalonica with all the, the hostility now that they're facing because of the gospel. He wants to assure them that God hasn't forgotten them and that God, God knows, he understands, and God will punish them. He will bring his wrath upon them to the utmost. There's a time when the world, the world in a sense, has gone too far in its opposition to the church. And we know that God will not forget us in that. Paul's assuring them that, that God is going to bring his just judgment on those who oppose the gospel and the church. Paul uh, later will write in his second letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, he'll tell them there in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, for after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God is for you in this way. He, just, he doesn't turn a blind eye when his church is hurt. And, and Paul, in his own ministry, as, uh, as the apostle knew opposition all over, and Paul even in, in 2 Timothy 4.14 names by name one of the people that opposed him. And he said it was, there was Alexander, a man by the name of Alexander the coppersmith. And, and Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. But he says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And so in this present age, the world is going to land some blows on the church and on believers. At times, very painful ones. But, but Paul is assuring the church there in Thessalonica, he's assuring us that Jesus is counting every blow. He, he's marking down every accusation. And that wrath is being stored up for those folks. That, that's a terrifying phrase. Wrath has been, it, it's filled up the measure of their sins. Wrath will come upon them to the uttermost. Sort of like this top of a mountain that's about to slide down into the valley. Be assured, Christ will bring justice for his saints. Now, Satan had come in his work, certainly, and, and was presenting lies about Paul's ministry. And, and one of those were, was that Paul had abandoned the church in Thessalonica. Paul, though, is writing back to let them know the reason why he hasn't come back to them. He doesn't want them to think, well, he's just sort of moved on. 
They're no longer in Paul's orbit. He, he doesn't care about them. He doesn't pray about them. He's not his, their concern anymore. But rather, Paul lets them know he's longed to return to Thessalonica. Even with the fierce opposition that Paul found in Thessalonica, he wants to come back. And yet, he says he has been prevented from coming by, by, by some kind of real opposition that he speaks of in verse 18. That comes from Satan himself. Now, Paul doesn't explain exactly to us that what this, this hindering work is or was that Satan did. There's a lot of speculation about that, back and forth. Maybe it was a physical ailment that Paul had. Maybe some threat of some kind had come against Paul. We, just, we don't really know. But whatever it was, Paul understood that this was satanic opposition to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But the context, I think, might lend us to understand that this was some kind of personal opposition from uh, the world. As Paul speaks of how uh, they were seeking to hinder Paul in verse 16 from speaking to the Gentiles. So there may have been some hindering work of the Gentiles or the Jews to keep Paul from continuing on in his ministry. Paul here speaks directly that it's the work of the enemy. And we might wonder, how did Paul really know that? How did he know it was the enemy that was doing this? Because in the scriptures, we we read about, we could call them providential hinderings, times when God stops things. God intervenes. And then there are here, we see demonic hinderings. Paul understood in the book of Acts that at one point in his ministry, uh, he was seeking to travel to different places, and we're told that the the Spirit kept him from going in a certain direction in Acts chapter 16. The, the Spirit kept him from, he wanted to go into the region of Asia, or Asia Minor, north, north, sort of eastern Turkey. And we're told the Spirit would not let him go there. And then we're told that, that he wanted to travel to an area called Bithynia, but the Spirit again of Jesus did not permit him to do it. So there are providential hinderings where God is directing his saints by those. Paul understood that. But then here we kind of, there are times when Paul faced truly, truly demonic opposition. How did Paul know the difference? Well, perhaps it was due to the fact that being an apostle, he had a certain supernatural revelation gifting that let him know these things. Or maybe Paul simply understood that God was working in his providence in other times, guiding circumstances and events that perhaps as a 
sort of a normal event of life, a, a storm, cancellation of a trip, uh, a, a ship, passage, or some such thing. Paul would have believed that, that God was working all things after the counsel of his will as he went about his work. And he could know that, that God was working in storms. God was working in ship schedules as he went from one place to the other. It's difficult to know, though, how Paul in the end understood or knew that this was a demonic attack, but it was. He was right. One thing we need to be careful of, though, I think as we read through this, is not to, not to think every trouble, every bad thing in life is because it's a demonic attack. It might be. The Bible acknowledges that, that Satan is able to do things physically in this world. He, he is able to bring pain upon the people of God. Could be through illness or sickness or other kinds of opposition physically. He did that to Job. And we also know that Satan is able to bring temptations against the believer because he came to Jesus in that way and presented Christ with temptations. But we also know that, that Satan's not responsible for all the bad things that happen in this world. He's not that powerful. But he's real. And the Bible tells us that he goes around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so, for us, the ability to sort of tell the difference between whether a circumstance is satanic or maybe simply a result of our own sin or the result of the sins of others, or just the result of living in a fallen world with, with illness and accidents and such. It's not, it's not always easy. But we know that no matter what happens, we... We know that God is sovereign over all things. We know our God rules the wind and the waves as well as the enemy of our souls. After all, Satan had to ask God for permission to tempt Job. He had to ask God for permission to sift Peter as wheat. And so we need to treat the enemy as dangerous. But not an equal with God. And always understand that he is under the rule of Christ. He is as dangerous as an angry lion. But 
but he is felled by the word of the Lord. And so the saint is going to be one who is, who is always armed wherever he or she goes. Armed with, with something that is far more powerful than the lion, and that's the word of the living God. But, but I think if the, the opposition that the church faces is, is in response to the preaching of the word and the proclamation of the gospel, it's a pretty safe bet that this is some kind of demonic opposition. Now, it doesn't mean that, that we're facing Satan directly, as Paul speaks of here. But certainly, we're certainly facing some wrath of the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Because one thing we know the enemy hates the most and fears the most is the message of the gospel clearly and plainly declared. Because above all things, hell hates Christ. Hell hates Christ. It hates the message of the cross of Christ. It hates the spread of the gospel. And it hates the establishment then of the local church. All because it hates Christ. And, and then it hates the body of Christ. The local church. You know, whenever we, we speak of Satan's opposition, I think, to to the church. We, we shouldn't sort of think of the church universal. Um, the church sort of in general, the church invisible. But we ought to be thinking of the church specifically, the local church. The church where there are, are, are people who have real names and real faces for us. People that we know and we love. Satan's not a, a generalist, you could say, in his attacks on the church. He's a specialist. That is, he'll attack the local church in specific ways. And, and we know he does that with false teaching and with lies, often about the people of God. That, that's one of his specialties. He lies. He lies about the church. He lied about the Apostle Paul. Paul acknowledges here to the church at Thessalonica that it was the work of the devil that kept him from visiting them. The lie had come that Paul had no concern for them. Paul had abandoned them. But Paul wants them to know that there are evil spiritual forces that are keeping him from coming. This is where the spiritual battle is raging in this moment. Satan is looking to discourage the saints in Thessalonica by, by lying to them about the Apostle Paul. Paul wants them to understand that. There are moments... There are moments when the church will be set back on a human level 
through the work of the enemy. He'll impede the work of the church. He'll discourage the saints. He'll, he'll wound saints with temptations and sins. He'll hurt them with false teachings. He'll persecute them. He'll lie about them. He'll, he'll get them to make bad decisions about life and marriage and so forth in all sorts of ways. We know that. Paul tells us that, that we're not unaware of Satan's schemes. We get how he works. He told the church at Corinth, he said, because there was a, a believer there who had fallen into sin, grave sin, and, and they repented and they came back. And Paul said, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I also wrote that I, I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But the one whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, what I have forgiven, uh, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And so... And he said, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not unaware of his schemes. This, this believer in Corinth had repented. And Paul's urging the church to forgive them. Paul understands that, 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 that though they have sort of advanced against Satan's lies in this saint's life who was sinning, because they've repented, the devil now switches a strategy. And he tries to get to the church, the church to remain angry and unforgiving against this saint. Paul says, we understand what Satan's about here. We see what you're doing, and it won't work. You're trying to get us to sin on the opposite side. We defeated you with repentance, as it were, and now you're trying to get us to refuse to forgive. And we'll defeat you with forgiveness. And, and so the spiritual battle isn't fought in, in sort of this, this hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil that we might imagine. It will do no good as, as Luther Luther was a, a brilliant man, a quirky man, though, at times. Luther is said to have thrown his inkwell at the devil in anger. Legend has it you can see even a, a, an ink spot on the wall where he did that. But that did no good. Rather, we overcome the enemy with repentance and faith and obedience and endurance in the face of suffering. And with a confidence in the very living word of God that, that comes and cuts through the lies of the enemy like a hot knife through butter. Luther was far better when he wrote his hymn where he says, One little word will fell him. One little word of the word of God will fell the devil. And so we, we don't come against the enemy with incantations or curses Something out of a horror movie. That's not the, the real spiritual battle. But rather we know he comes at us with more common and mundane things like temptations to sin, refusals to forgive, false teachings, lies, hinderings in the proclamation of the gospel. 
And so we, we come at him sort of like a football team that knows the plays the other team is going to run. We understand his schemes and we just prepare. We train, we discipline, and we, we go with courage in the word of the living God. Well, Paul deeply loves the saints here. He wants them to know that. The lies circulated, Paul doesn't care about you. He's using you. He's done with you. He's moved on. And so Paul lets them know the spiritual battle is raging around that issue. And that the reason Paul hasn't come is because, because Satan is, is working to keep him away. Satan is working to get them to believe Paul doesn't care. But Paul reaffirms his love for them. And he does it in ultimate terms, as we see here. He, he, he doesn't merely say, you know, I just want you to know you mean a great deal to me. As good as that might have been. But rather he says, for who is our hope, verse 19, or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not even you, before our Lord Jesus at his coming. For you are our glory and joy. Paul is, is piling up Christ-centered words here of affection for these believers. They are his hope, his joy, his, his crown, what he glories in before the Lord. And again, he says, my joy. Paul is, is letting them know how much they mean to him in Christ. And all of that, all of that is, is, is in the context of Jesus coming for them in his return. Paul is saying, I love you. I delight in you all. Not not with merely earthly affections, but, but my great delight is before our Lord who is coming back for us all. And so in that, Paul destroys the lie of the enemy and the church is protected. Jesus protects his church. He does so through ordinary means the means of the truth being declared, the gospel being preached. He does it through his word and the message of the gospel. He does it through the obedience of the church to the word and to the gospel. We ought to know, again, believer, Satan doesn't care about inkwells. He trembles at the word proclaimed and the word believed. That is what will shut the lion's mouth. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for defending us. We thank you that you have not left us alone. We thank you that we know that every, every opposition that comes against the church, you're remembering, you're counting you're keeping a record of and will bring justice for it. Father, help us to trust the word. Help us to trust you, Lord, to protect us. 
Lord, even in great opposition. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank that you are more committed to us than we are to you. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand as we close, as we sing together. Number 371. Number 371. Come, all Christians, be committed.